Hello, I'm Philip Brain. And I'm Harry Clennon. And you're listening to Bird's Eye by Spectacles. On the last episode, we discussed the basics of democratic theory and liberal democracy. What does liberalism mean? What does democracy mean? Today, we're going to be talking about small government visions of liberal democracy. So on this episode, we're going to be trying to get at how do you balance liberalism and democracy? Because at the end of the day, liberal democracy is sort of a vague concept, really. And there are a number of types of government, you can think of it that way, that throughout modern history have tried to realize the vision of liberal democracy to varying degrees of success. You can break the different types of government that have tried to achieve liberal democracy into really two main schools of thought, which are pretty familiar, and you'll probably recognize them. That's small government visions and big government visions of liberal democracy. Right, exactly. So we've got sort of the big and active government, right, versus the idea of this small and inactive or small and passive form of government. And I think what we're trying to get at in these two episodes here is um, the extent to which they represent different priorities between liberalism and democracy. So the idea is that big government in philosophies that embrace a larger and more active government, I think there's a, a prevailing idea that economic inequality undermines democratic equality and democratic health. And that economic inequality is bound to arise in a really, really free economic system. Right, exactly. That is, yeah, that's the assumption. And in ideas of small government, right, the idea is that economic inequality is sort of a natural outgrowth of liberty, right? It's a natural product of liberty. And sometimes perhaps that means that that comes at the expense of democracy. So that priority arrangement is democracy over liberalism, equality over freedom in a big government sense. And in a, in a smaller government sense, it's liberty over equality and perhaps liberalism over democracy. Right. Today, we're going to be talking about the small government vision of liberal democracy, sort of a prioritization of freedom before equality, liberalism before democracy. And next week, we'll be talking about the big government visions of liberal democracy. In either case, both today and next week, we're going to be asking the question primarily, does this school of thought, do either of these schools of thought encapsulate a sustainable vision of liberal democracy? And as you might remember from our episode last week, we started to talk about how if you drift too far to one extreme of liberalism or democracy, you're going to tend to lose the whole thing at the end of the day. You're going to lose both freedom and equality if you go too far to either extreme because the system is not sustainable. Right. So some of these ideas we're going to be talking about both today and next week are going to fall at the extremes. Mm -hmm. And so in those cases, you can probably imagine we're going to conclude that no, they're not sustainable visions. But regardless, we're also going to be looking to see if any of these ideas, extreme or otherwise, hold any useful lessons, even if they might not totally encompass a sustainable vision, right? Do they have some good ideas in there that are helpful no matter what? So without too much further introduction, let's just jump into small government visions of liberal democracy. Harry, why don't you start us on that? Sure. So we've sort of broken down two main components of what this small government vision entails, particularly right in the United States. We've got 
economic libertarianism, which is sort of the idea of maximum freedom for individuals to do what they want um, with their money, their time, their lives, and also conservatism, which is a social, you know, strain of social or political thought that is rooted in, believes itself to be rooted in the authoritative or sacred tradition of the past. And to some extent, we'll see, I think, today that they complement each other, but they're also in tension. And I think a quick note about that is, right, is particularly in the American context, what we see on the right side of the political spectrum in terms of institutional politics, the Republican Party, for example, has been dominated by an alliance between social or traditionalist conservatives and economic libertarians, right? And what we call that is fusionism, right? It started in about the 50s and the 60s. And the idea was that there could be a, a fusion between or an alliance between people who were were supportive of a, a laissez-faire economic system and a political tradition that believed itself to be rooted in sort of the authority or sacred aspect of the past. And as I say, those things might complement each other in certain ways, which we'll discuss, but there is also kind of a tension there, I think, that we would also like to get to. So yeah, let's, let's talk about the first one. Philip, why don't you talk about economic libertarianism, neoliberalism for us? Yeah, basically neoliberalism as we're talking about it is a school of economic philosophy that emerged dominant on the world stage in the 80s with President Ronald Reagan and Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. And neoliberal economic theory is rooted in really a single core belief that no matter what comes out of it, what inequality arises, the most important thing is that people are free to do as they please without being regulated or impeded on by the government. If I could just interject for a second, one way of thinking about it is, is neoliberalism believes that economic personal freedom is both just, it's just in a political sense, and it's also efficient, right? And it brings a lot of benefits to all of us, right? So it sort of wraps up these two concepts into the belief that this is both the just and the productive organization of society. Right. Right. And so I think we've got two arguments that bring those points home really nicely. Philip, do you want to talk about the first one? Yeah. The first argument comes from a guy named Robert Nozick, who is a political philosophy professor at Harvard and wrote a book called Anarchy, State, and Utopia. In it, he presents a thought experiment called the Wilt Chamberlain argument. And it goes like this. Imagine there's a world where the government has distributed money completely equally. Everyone has the same amount. Now, imagine that there's a guy like Wilt Chamberlain who's really good at basketball, and people want to see Wilt play. So Wilt gets a contract with a team that wants him on their team because they think he'll boost ticket sales. And he says, look, as part of my salary, I want a premium off of every single ticket sale. And they say, okay, you'll get 25 cents off the top of every ticket sale that we make. So every single person that attends gives 25 cents right into a box that has Wilt Chamberlain's name on it because they want to see him play. They're excited about it. And they're happy to give that money of theirs to him, totally knowing that it's going to go to him directly. If you fast forward to the end of the season, imagine that a million people attended the games. And all a million people gave these 25 cents to Wilt Chamberlain. Well, Wilt Chamberlain ends up at the end of the season with $250,000, way more than everyone started with at an equal amount. So Nozick's point is that if you allow people to freely choose how they want to spend their money, their resources, if you allow, if you give people freedom, in a sense, equality cannot last. Freedom and equality are at odds with each other. Then his argument is you cannot have an equal society, which is just because it will be unfree because you'll have to have a government that comes in 
and frequently redistributes resources, infringes on people's mm-hmm. freedoms to do as they please, to spend money as they please, to, you know, whatever. Right. So I think also what this shows, bringing it back to our discussion of small versus large states, the idea is that only, for, for Nozick, only the smallest possible state can be just. Only a state which provides for people's security from foreign threats or, you know, maintains the peace at home is the just state. Any state that tries to distribute resources in a certain way is actually um, abridging people's freedom and is ruling over them unjustly. So only a small state, the most minimal possible state, can be just. Because only that can preserve freedom. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so as I said at the beginning, right, you've got this idea that, you know, economic libertarianism is the only just form of government. But it's also, as I, as I mentioned, there's a belief that it is an efficient form of government, that it's a form of government that is going to make everyone better off. And so another reading that we did for this week, and as just to, to point out that these are all in the show notes, so if you're curious about reading them, I, I say it's very much worth your time. But we also read this, this short essay called I Pencil. I think I read it in high school, actually. But the idea was to talk about right, capitalism as a, as a form of economic order. This argument, I pencil, is basically the story of like a Ticonderoga number two pencil and how it comes to be. It starts in the, the, the forests, you know, in logging areas in Oregon and Northern California. It's put on, on in, through shipping processes on, on, on trains and trucks and stuff like that to go to uh, the, the wood is to be taken to factories and mills through which a pencil is produced. And the story means to drive home the point that there's basically this magical mechanism at work called the invisible hand. It's not a magical mechanism because it claims that it happens in reality, but right, it is a, it's it's a it's an awe-inspiring mechanism for allocating resources in society. And it's uncoordinated activity, right? That you know, the people who are doing the logging are not don't have the knowledge that the people in the factory have in making the pencil. So a lot of people who have no idea how to make a pencil as an object actually contribute to the making of this right useful object. And the guy who wrote the essay, he uses the example of a pencil because he thinks it's the most forceful, right? It's a, such a simple tool that we have, but it could also apply in his mind. And he mentions this to cars, planes, you know, our, our kitchen appliances, anything that has to that is goes through a large process of resource extraction and then, you know, refining into, you know, the products that we use every day. It's wonderful that that this you know free market this invisible hand coordinates all of our activity despite not having any sort of central planning and brings us these goods right and makes us all better off and so that's the way in which an economically liberal order is beneficial to all of us it's both just and we all walk away better off yeah so we have we have these two principal arguments that freedom and equality are at odds with each other and that freedom's more important and then also that freedom is actually very good at providing things that people want if you have a free economic system. But and this is only possible when the state is small, right? I think it's just, you know, important yeah. to keep noting that, right? This is only possible, both the justness and the efficiency of it and the benefits of the system are only possible when the state is as small as it can possibly be. Right. So are there any problems with these two arguments? Because on the face of them, you know, very persuasive, rhetorically forceful. But well, you betcha, Philip, there are some problems with it. Um, <laughs> one thing I think is it comes out of this is, right, let's talk about, right, this, let's, you know, jump back to this Wilt Chamberlain argument first and look at that. So one issue, and it points, I think it points in this direction, right, the internal logic of Nozick's argument is pretty sound, but I think it also points beyond itself in a way that is somewhat troubling. For example, right, you know, Wilt walks away from the season with $250,000, and maybe that empowers him to buy a stadium, 
and you know make gross markups on ticket prices and maybe that's the only stadium in town so he has a monopoly then right on what people can spend their money on and he forces people to pay more money the point being that with each interaction with each accumulation of wealth there enters into a risk of the consolidation of that wealth right such that certain individuals who maybe started out gaining money on their on merit right on their ability to play basketball for example right eventually entrench all of their resources and actually have the ability to say influence the very small government in that society to distribute resources more to them to you know make make it so that they are have a legally endowed monopoly or something like that and so the idea is that resource consolidation and that is political power right as we talked about last episode resource power is political power becomes in a lot of ways actually inimical to the very freedom that is supposed to right undergird this whole system right and an important thing to note is that Nozick talks about freedom as simply sort of a means. Freedom is justified in itself, no matter where it leads. But I think it's important to note that that's not how most people define freedom. I mean, in Nozick's argument, you get a situation in which a bunch of people are freely and completely obliviously walking into a surrendering of their freedoms, right? Right. Each person might freely choose to give 25 cents to Wilt Chamberlain but if that leads to Wilt Chamberlain being super wealthy and then coercing them through monopolistic practices, whatever it might be, however many years down the line is this practice going on repeatedly, none of them want to surrender their freedom to Wilt Chamberlain, mm-hmm. right? And none of them want to put themselves in a situation in which they're coerced. So Nozick's idea of freedom is... Sure, you can freely and blindly walk in to giving up your freedom, and that is freedom. But I think for most people, that's really not a meaningful definition of freedom. Freedom is the ability to live your life as you choose, right? And it's it's substantive. And and you said something when we were sort of discussing this reading, Philip, that I thought was pretty insightful, right? Which is like human notions of justice are not necessarily rational principles followed to their logical ends meaning that you know we think we believe things in our heart to be the case even if we don't necessarily rationally believe them or or can't undergird them in you know an extensive political philosophy and so this idea that it is only justified to have a small state because that maintains people's freedom is perhaps not what people most people think when they think of freedom right they think of as like being able to possess like a certain amount of resources to do with what they want right and so they that's what most people would like to have and most people view as as just Um, and so it's not necessarily right that this sort of very rational logical argument might not hold for the average person and if we want to have a democracy we probably also need to acknowledge right what people's you know intuitive notions of justice are rather than sort of you know some sort of logical series of steps to land on a certain ideal right. state which is small right and on another problem of the of the small state the other argument i pencil about how look at how great things are when the government doesn't get involved well a problem is that reed doesn't recognize just how much infrastructure is undergirding all of those transactions all of that market Mm -hmm. behavior right the idea that if you just let people be and do whatever they please without any government interaction you'll get miraculous decentralized supply chains that provide incredible goods and services it has a big flaw that it fails to recognize the level of risk involved in doing something like that when there is no regulation. So imagine the story of the Ticonderoga pencil. If there's no 
enforcement mechanism for say in the middle of the supply chain you've got the person buying the logs of lumber having them shipped from oregon to a place where they're going to be milled into smaller blanks of wood that will really become the pencils Mm -hmm. if that guy goes and he wants to buy a bunch of wood from oregon and have it transported all the way to wherever he is he needs to be able to have confidence that he's going to get what he pays for the rail line you know loses some of his stock or whatever loses some of the wood he's going to get compensated right right and the reality is that the guy milling that wood is confident that those things are going to work out because there's a legal system enforced there's there's regulations about the economy about what you can say about your product what you can do what you can't do what you have to guarantee and penalties for if you fail to live up to a contract, right? Mm-hmm. And in a small community, in, in a small town... Where everyone knows each other. Where everyone knows each other. You don't need a complicated legal system to make sure that people follow what they say they're going to follow. If somebody doesn't, people are going to learn that pretty quickly, and they're not going to work with that guy. Mm-hmm. But in as complicated an economy as the U.S., which Reed obviously illustrates with how many moving parts there are, there are thousands of people you could buy wood from. There are thousands of freight companies that might transport your wood. And you can't go around testing every one of them to see which works and which doesn't, who's lying and who's telling the truth. Because your money's on the line. Yeah. Right. And and so so the dynamism that Reed thinks is there in a free market, people taking risks to make new things that nobody else has done, that only happens if there's some base level of security behind what they believe they're getting. Right, and it's not just dynamism, it's also trust. The trust that we have in our economy, in our society, is a product of knowing that that you're not going to get screwed. Or that if someone tries to screw you, that there are deterrent mechanisms, right? If someone tries to screw you, you have some sort of legal recourse. And so trust is actually a product of the government structuring the market in certain ways that allow things to move smoothly along. So dynamism and trust really are not possible without the government being present. You also have all this other stuff, right, in in iPads, like who's making the roads? It's the government, right? All all these sorts of things and, and, you know, understanding how we, restrictions on the environment, right? Clear cutting and logging, for example, because it can be quite dangerous for the environment. So certain regulations make possible the sustainability of, of, the, of the market system. And so I think that is a really important thing to recognize. That efficiency doesn't come about merely out of a lack of regulation or a lack of government. It actually comes about as a feature or a product of having a government which can be a referee between yeah. the different sectors of society. Yeah. So there are a couple problems with these arguments, but do they have useful things to teach us anyways? Sure. It's important to draw out some lessons from this stuff that can really nicely inform how we view the the society in which we live. One thing is the well-regulated market can be very good at allocating resources, right? I mean, the the magic of iPencil is not entirely crazy, right? It's this notion that we we actually are able to get these extraordinary, very simple or even extraordinarily complex tools that we use in our daily lives through a a system in which, you know, you have largely, right, self-governing actors who are, who are, you know, negotiating between each other and passing products between each other to make these final goods, which we use, right? So there is this allocative mechanism that works with the market that is that is good. And I think, you know, historical evidence also tends to suggest that having this sort of decentralized mode of production is more efficient than having a right a sort of centrally administered in some cases, right? There might be, you might find instances, which we'll talk about, the government should perhaps provision certain resources to people because markets are not efficient. But in a lot of cases, right, we see that having allocative mechanisms in the market benefit us, all of us, in important ways. 
That's one. And another one I would say, and this goes to the Wilt Chamberlain argument, is that sometimes freedom is going to put a dent in equality, and perhaps equality will constrain our freedom to do whatever it is that we want at any time. And so it shows us that it might not be possible to have a maximum of both at any given moment, that some balance needs to be struck. Um, well, and, yeah. and, and not only that, but that if you have a totally maximal degree of freedom, absolutely all the freedom to do absolutely anything, it can very easily easily lead to a place where you have very little freedom, mm -hmm. you know? And so the important thing is not provisioning all the freedom in the world to everyone. The important thing is making sure that everyone has a base level of freedom that, that is not ever eliminated, right? Right. Not just that everyone can do anything, but that everyone can do these certain things, have the power to do these certain things, have these certain freedoms that they can rely on that they will always have, no matter who has money, who doesn't have money, right? No matter who's in power, who isn't in power. Exactly. So that's, you know, economic libertarianism, neoliberalism for you, you know, in a snapshot, a broad view of it. Let's shift over to conservatism and again i'd say here we're gonna we're gonna be giving you a broad view we'll probably talk about it more in future episodes but as just a quick shout out where i learned a lot of what i know about conservatism is from another podcast called know your enemy two guys who uh, are on the left and discuss conservatism in a way that is very good faith intellectually honest and i would say it's worth your time if you have any interest in if this conversation interests you i'd say you know take your time over there and and, and listen to them but let's just quickly right reiterate what is conservatism philip conservatism in this case, we're talking about essentially a social philosophy or governing philosophy that prioritizes a reverence or value of tradition and the way things have been done in the past, usually with reference to some Judeo-Christian values, at least today and particularly in the West. But conservatism, of course, can exist anywhere in any culture. But in our case, usually that's what it looks like. Right, And also a not just a belief in the value of tradition, but a belief in human excellence and that some people are going to be better suited to certain things, i.e. governing or leading, than other people. These mm -hmm. are really the two core beliefs of conservatism. So why don't we get a little bit into why those are core beliefs? Why do, why do conservatives believe these things? Yeah, so I was just going to say before I jump into why conservatives believe what they do, I think it's worth noting that there's this reverence for the past this view that the past that the, the tradition is uh, authoritative or sacred sometimes that past can be imagined right sometimes we construct it and this is something that you know is, is, is fairly normal for people to do uh, we you know we imagine that the past may have been better than it was but sometimes right it's i think it's worth pointing out that especially for conservatism right the past is constructed as ideal or pure and that that's what must be maintained even if it wasn't right always like that so with that, let's sort of talk about why conservatives believe what they do. One thing I think is important to consider is right, progress merely for progress sake is something that will destroy our past and institutions that have served us well. So the idea that, you know, burning the whole house down for right some you know small problem within it may not be the best idea, right? That's what they think. As well as the notion that Philip brought up, right, that some of us are better suited to lead, right? There's a, there's, a, there's a faith in conservatism in a human excellence, right, which means that some, some humans can achieve heights of excellence that are not available to all of us. And 
in the liberal conception of conservatism, where conservatives have made their peace with liberal democracy, that manifests itself right in representative government, where we elect people to rule us who are theoretically better at the job or would be better at the job wiser than the average citizen. And I think that's one of the points where neoliberalism, economic philosophy and social conservatism actually complement each other. Right. Because in neoliberalism, you see this belief that if someone's rich, if someone's wealthy, if someone's successful, it's because they're they're smart. Mm-hmm. They did something well. They did something that other people couldn't do. They provided something that people wanted. They're well suited to be wealthy right. and to have economic power because if they got it, they must be smart, which means they're going to be smart in using what they've got. Right. And you see that very similar thought process in conservative social philosophy, that there are certain people who are going to be more qualified to lead, and those are the people that you want at the helm. So just this is one of those areas where actually neoliberalism and conservatism, even if they're not always married, like we've seen in the U.S. for a solid portion of our modern history, they do complement each other right. naturally in, in certain a, ways. In notions of merit, for sure. Right. right. In notions of merit and with respect to leadership, economic success, it's all there. That certain people will excel, and not just that they will excel, but based on certain intrinsic qualities, they deserve to excel. Right. So I think that is that is that is very important. So extending on that, we also want to talk about this relationship of conservatism to democracy. And here I'm talking descriptively and not pejoratively when I say that I think there is a possible hostility or skepticism of democracy as a form of government that is sort of intrinsic to conservative thought. It suggests that there is a tradition which should supersede, in some cases, what the citizen body wants to do, what the body politic wants to do. And there are individuals within that body politic who are excellent and who are living in accordance with that tradition in ways that mean that they should have power to rule over us. And so there is this tricky tension between conservatism and democracy, which can sometimes, I think, be papered over, more or less has been in the United States, where, you know, you elect people to governing roles, and they do policy and right, that kind of thing, but not necessarily always, right? I think there is an issue where if we have, for example, exceptional individuals, we got to ask ourselves, why should they be constrained by democracy, which is constituted by a less exceptional population, theoretically. And so there's a a way in which I think conservatism can sort of become unmoored from democracy. And it's always, I think, is always a little bit of a present danger because that belief in exceptional individuals and perhaps that belief in tradition may need to abridge the idea of the consent of the governed in some ways. If there are people who are better suited to lead than the masses, then why wouldn't it follow that there's one person who's in fact best suited to lead? And why would any of these people need democracy if they're better than these people? So that anti-democratic bias, which can be moderated at times, representative democracy. People vote and they don't vote on issues, but they elect certain people who are going to do a better job than they would at actually governing. That's a really moderated version. But you're right to point out that If they get divorced, that value for democracy and that value in the exceptional individual, you can easily lose democracy. And an anti-democratic bias can turn into a pro-authoritarian sentiment. Yeah, right. And I think it's also worth, you know, pointing out it's not necessarily the most pleasant of things to say, but I think in some ways it is even sort of built in to the American system. I think you can say that the founding fathers had an idea for a Republican government, you know, they're myriad hypocrisies temporarily tabled they believed that certain individuals who were the wisest and best men of their communities should be elected by those communities to rule and so you see it sort of in that case 
mostly in, in some ways and not in other ways married to you know ways of thinking about democracy but it's still there right even in the american founding and then you see that in the idea of like the institutions of for example the senate or even the house which might have certain anti-majoritarian institutional components that might need to override the popular will at different points and so it's it's worth noting that those exist as part of the American blueprint. And to some extent that has been, you know, ameliorated, right, by, you know, expanding the franchise, by ending slavery, and in other ways, perhaps not. And so I think that is worth considering that element of conservatism, which exists from the moment of the American founding. Yeah. And one other issue we want to talk about with conservatism and liberal democracy is that how you define that past that you venerate can have wildly different impacts on the type of future that you seek and right. how sustainable liberal democracy is. Definitely. Because if you have a conservative philosophy that says, in, in the American case, that says the great tradition of America has been democracy and it's what made us great, it's what's going to make us great, it's what we have to have to be great. That's a sort of brand of conservatism that is actually very complementary to liberal democracy, obviously, because if you believe that strongly in democracy, then the system is going to be supported by people who believe that. On that subject, and this is in the show notes of the article, we both read a really, really nice article recommended to us by a close friend by an author named, a writer who's a poet named Peter Virex in The Atlantic. It was written in like 1940. It's called But I'm a Conservative. And he's sort of a liberal conservative writing uh, a lot about what he views as sort of the extremes of fascism on the right and collectivism and communism on the left. Interestingly, I, I think it would fit in really nicely. The sentiments of the argument would fit in really well with a lot of sort of never Trump type conservatives, what they've been talking about today. But importantly, I think what he talks about is that democracy and, and the laws that govern democracy must be viewed as the tradition to which we adhere. So that sort of reshapes the idea of conservatism and tradition as being sort of authoritative in an absolute sense, Judeo-Christian values or something like that, into democracy as our collective tradition and our respect for the institutions of democracy as our collective tradition. And I think that that is Really nice. It was, I think it's a beautiful essay. I would recommend reading it. It's not It's not too long. And it was, even though it's interesting to read from the perspective of today's politics, and actually when I started reading it, I thought it was about today's politics, but it turns out it's written in 1940. So it's a testament to the enduring quality of these debates right. and their importance to liberal democracy. Absolutely. We're talking about it then, 80 years ago. We're talking about it now. Hopefully we have a liberal democracy around in 80 years to still be talking about it, but... It's a great essay. It's in the show notes. Feel free to check it out, right? It's good. But the trouble is you could just as easily have a very different definition of American history, and we've seen mm -hmm. that. And if you have a definition of American history and what has really made America great, which is white Christianity or white Protestantism, well, then that's going to be really difficult to coexist with liberal democracy. In fact, they're antithetical because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, there are people who have built America who are not white, not Protestant, not Christian. And if we have a liberal dem democratic society, those people have to be included in that vision. Otherwise, it's not going to work. The country's not going to work and people are going to lose their rights and democracy is not going to function. Right. So, and you can see this at work, a really tangible example of how do you define your past and how does it define your compatibility or your favorability of democracy? Today, you could see the Trump brand of conservatism defining America's past explicitly or implicitly in a number of places as 
white and Christian for the most part. And that leads to the kind of policies and rhetoric that Trump uses when he says, make America great again. He means a very particular America. And Mm -hmm. on the other side, you actually see Democrats very frequently appealing to a sense of conservatism too. It's not just Republicans, right, in America, but Democrats appealing to a different story of American tradition, which is, you see it all the time, slogans like, America was built by immigrants. Mm -hmm. That's a conservative appeal to a particular definition of our history and our tradition that gets people to value different things today or in the future. So it's important to note that because you see in America that both major parties frequently appeal to conservatism. And it might be that to have a healthy community, you have to have some sort of self-definition, some idea of where we came from and where we're going that's compatible. Who we are. Right. Right. And the fact that it's on both sides of the political spectrum really reinforces that idea that it is something that you need. And we're going to talk about that in more depth in another podcast episode, not next week, but the week after. So if that topic interests you, the idea of who we are and how does that shape, how does how do different definitions of that shape a community, definitely stay tuned for that. I just wanted to throw that out there. I also think it's worth adding, right, for the Democrats or for people who sort of identify with the center or the center left in the United States, and even I think this is somewhat true on, on the on the more uh, liberal center right, that our, our, our own sort of imagination of the past is that America is a nation which has always, which has, you know, started flawed and is always constantly moving, right? It's the idea, right, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, right? And I think that that is something that, that frequently you'll see the idea is that, you know, we've, we were bad, but we've always been getting better. And, and what we're defined by is our constant striving to live up to the idea of the declaration and that sort of that is i think there are all kinds of holes you can poke in that i think that our, our history of movement towards a more just society is is uneven at best but i think that you see the sort of embrace of of that tradition of moving towards that you know better 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 ideal as progressive as it is it is at its heart conservative in some ways it's conservative in the sense that it views you know our past and our legacy as authoritative as maybe yeah. even quasi sacred and i think that that is important to consider, right? We tell ourselves certain stories about our traditions, about our past that inform who we are today and who we want to be tomorrow. And so I think that that is, that's very important to bring up. And that's probably the first sort of lesson that's useful about liberal democracy that you can draw from conservatism. And those are places where we see it today in action. The other lesson that might be useful to draw from conservatism would be the value of representative democracy. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, governing a complex modern society like America is, well, complex. It is an incredibly intricate process, requires lots of specialized knowledge about lots of things. It requires thousands and thousands and thousands of people, and it requires hundreds of people to coordinate those thousands and thousands of people, right? And representative democracy is useful there. To vote for people, to actually take care of governing, who will do what they tell you they're going to do. Right. Rather than holding referenda, and we talked about referenda in the last episode, rather than holding referenda on every minute decision of governance, which could never possibly work in a large modern state, representative democracy is useful. And ideally, you'd like to have people doing that job who are actually good at it. Because as with anything complicated or difficult, some people are going to be better at it than other people. And so you'd hope that in a representative democracy, you would elect actually competent people but who also represent the desires of the voters. Right, right. So 
let's maybe bring it back a little bit towards what we set out to talk about, the size of government, the size of the state, which also I think sort of highlights maybe some tensions between neoliberalism and conservatism in the sense that neoliberalism can only countenance a very small state. Conservatives, on the other hand, want us probably want a small state liberal conservatives who have made this alliance with the neoliberals with the economic free market type people agree right a small state in which people are, are you know excellence can emerge in the in the sector of business as well they, they would agree with that but i think there is an extent to which right conservatives envision even if a small state perhaps a slightly more powerful state that can take certain things out of the realm of public choice perhaps abortion or gay marriage in the past, not anymore, are taken, perhaps conservatives would like to take those things out of the hands of the democracy and maybe enshrine them as sort of aspects of our tradition, our Judeo-Christian heritage. And there's maybe a tension there, right, in which the, the power of the state is not quite consonant between these two philosophies. Although I think, right, Philip was talking about this in our sort of pre-discussion of the episode, that there's a belief for economic elites that because you have these excellent CEOs, people who understand the market, who come up with really innovative ideas, that those things also should be sort of outside the sphere of right democratic control, right? So I guess in some ways, right, you see that there is a consonance between them, but I think also a little bit of a dissonance in that conservatives envision a state that has certain powers, which would abridge both freedom and democracy in the name of tradition or human excellence. And I think we've kind of seen that more and more today where there's been a bit of a, a split or actually just a victory for conservatives within this alliance, within this marriage of economic neoliberals and social conservatives, that the conservatives have sort of won the battle, I think, in some ways with Donald Trump, in, in rhetoric at least, maybe not in his precise policies, which I think were much more in line with pretty you know, normal Republican economic philosophy tax cut stuff like that. But on, on in, rhetorically, at least, he sort of, I think, in a lot of ways, obliterated the, right, the notion of total freedom, right? Because he wanted, you know, issues with trade and, the, and, and immigration and stuff like that, that in a lot of ways, I think the social conservatives, the more populist conservatives who believe in this authoritative tradition, although you can talk about all the contradictions and Donald Trump as the embodiment of that, that they sort of have won, for now at least, that battle and the alliance between the neoliberals and conservatives maybe fracturing on that on that basis. Yeah, I think that's all really important to understanding what's going on in America today with conservatism and with neoliberalism. But I think we'll probably talk about that more another time. In another episode, I'm sure we will. But right now, I think it's probably time to just wrap up this episode with a little conclusion about what did we really learn here that's useful and important. Firstly, small government visions of liberal democracy have some useful and good points that are that are important absolutely to, to keep in mind absolutely if you want to have a free society and what are some of the advantages that can come out of that but ultimately i think we find that small government visions of liberal democracy tend to be consumed by principles which if followed to their end would undermine both liberal freedom and democratic equality in the long term. So they're not really sustainable, even though they do provide useful lessons. You need some substantive commitment to equality if you want to have liberalism or democracy or liberal democracy survive. How much of a commitment to equality? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about next week. What does that look like? What are certain visions of bigger, more substantive commitments to equality in society? Mm -hmm. What do those look like? And 
what can we learn from them? Are they sustainable visions or do they have their own blind spots too? And what can we take out of them that is useful in the same way that we did with the small government visions of a truly free society? Exactly. But that's next week. And we hope you enjoyed listening to this. We hope you found some of it useful. If you'd like to talk with us about this episode, feel free to shoot us an email or visit our website at spectacles.news. You can find a post for this episode and there will be a comment section. Feel free to drop anything in there. We'll talk with you. Anybody else who wants to, to read or talk about the episode will be there too. So feel free to visit there and feel free to check out our other shows, Spectacles Focus every Sunday and Spectacles Insight every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Until then, thanks for listening and we'll see you soon. Yeah, thank you guys. See you soon.